Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast. A weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, going it alone, sans co-host this week, as David Moser's got a, an evening class to teach, and Jeremy Goldcorn is actually enjoying a tropical holiday in Hawaii with the whole extended Goldcorn clan. Big aloha to the Goldcorns. So I, I get a lot of requests from listeners to do shows about entrepreneurship, to Maybe profile a successful entrepreneur, especially, you know, maybe a foreigner who's managed to build a profitable business in a really, you know, often hostile and quite competitive environment with sometimes difficult regulatory obstacles that they have to navigate. In some ways, I'm, um, I'm told, mind you, I don't have any entrepreneurial bones in my body, not a single one. I wouldn't know from personal experience. Um, in some ways, they say that Beijing, or maybe China more generally, is actually a, a pretty easy place to set up a business. Uh, others have told me quite the opposite. Well, today we're going to talk to a successful business owner in Beijing, an American whose business I personally patronize with rather alarming frequency. Um, as faithful listeners to this show will know, we like to drink a beer or two or three as we record Seneca, and often after the show, we're you know all heading up the street to one of my very favorite places in town, Great Leap Brewing, the tap room at E12, Xinzhongjie, right off of Chunxiulu, so that I can uh, enjoy a pint or two or three of Shaoshui, uh, the little general. Actually, it, it ought to be, I got to bring this up with the owner, it, it ought to be Young Marshall if we're going to be historical, historically faithful about it, as the delicious IPA is actually named after Zhang Xueliang. Uh, today on Seneca, we are going to be talking about operating an F&B business in China, about the growing popularity of gr- craft beer in China. And there are now, I believe, four breweries in Beijing, including the terrific Slow Boat, which uh, a friend of mine named Chandler Jurenko started, Jing A, which my friends Christian Lee and Alec Acker started. And uh, we're also going to be talking about the ins and outs of the regulatory environment, about ownership, licensing beer culture in China and the reception that this kind of beer has had with Chinese people. After all, I think there may be a lot of expatriates drinking microbrewery IPAs in Beijing, but it's hardly enough to sustain a business. So today, I warmly welcome Carl Setzer, the owner and creator of Great Leap, which now has three tap rooms in Beijing. Welcome to Seneca, Carl. Thank you, Kaiser. It's an interesting uh, feeling to be here today. How, how is it interesting? Is it just like because of the beers or no? <laughs> Now we've uh, we've been enjoying some snow beer, so the uh, instant hangover is already kicking in. But <laughs> I think it's more just the uh, long-term residence in Beijing, listening to Seneca for a couple of years now, and and now actually getting to see the uh, curtain behind the the yeah, the you magic, see how the, so. how the sausage is actually made. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. So you've seen yeah the the humble insides, the innards of of the pop-up Chinese <laughs> studio here. Um, so a note here, I just want to be clear: Seneca has never. 
sought or accepted any commercial sponsorship. So this, as far as I'm concerned, is and always is going to be a labor of love. I'm extremely fond of both Slow Boat and of Jing A, and I patronize Great Leap. Of course, a little more, mainly because it's so damn close to both the pop-up Chinese studio and to my house, so I can stumble home with relative ease. <laughs> yeah, and let me point out that I would never give Kaiser Cool money, so that kind of helps. Damn. <laughs> anyway, uh, Carl, tell us about yourself. Uh, I mean, your whole adventure in China, how it started out. I mean, you were not always a brewer by profession. Actually, you know, you grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, right? And then yes. went to college in the Deep South. I did. Uh, so the... The weekly jokes on uh, Jeremy's new lifestyle often ping home to me. Um, I grew up in Cleveland. I went to college in Alabama. Met some great people. Uh, it was a very religious school, uh, Christian and leaning. And so a lot of my upper classmates decided to uh, try their hand at the Hudson Taylor lifestyle in China to try to proselytize the masses. And so two or three of those were very, very close to me, and they convinced me to try my hand at uh, China life after college. I am a very uh, liberal agnostic, uh, so the life of a missionary was not necessarily mine, but uh, the call of friends always sends me running. So so off you came. You came, you came here to China. Are, you, are these guys still kicking around here? Somewhere? Yeah. Um, well, one one's actually an assistant uh, principal at a foreign school in Riyadh. And then the other two have stuck around in Shanghai for about 12 years. So. Okay, okay. And so you didn't actually learn to brew until after you came. In fact, you weren't a drinker at all until True. You, know, you were. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, without, without getting too emotional, you know, I grew up in a family that, uh, let's just say, my, my uh, relatives enjoyed their drink. And so I kind of stayed away from alcohol until I was in my mid-20s, part because of the exposure to religious education and the lack of access, and then part because I didn't know if I could uh, if I could control myself just based on experiencing alcoholism from a young age. Yeah. So you're making a you're making up for lost time now. Though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, for right. sure. By the uh, by the cubic ton, as it were. Yeah. So yeah, I'm give a little bit of a timeline. You know, the, the number six on Dojiao Hutong and Dongchong. You started that back in 2010. 2010. So just five years ago. Yep. So in five years now, you've built this this massive business. Wow. And, and and I guess, you know, integral to your business has been your wife, Liu Fang, right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, when did you guys get married, and how did you get her interested in, in beer <laughs> brewing as a business? Well, uh, you know, I, I ended up in Hubei the first, uh, for my first trip over to China, and I met this uh, ridiculously attractive and amazingly, uh, you know, outgoing and friendly Shandong girl who seemed out of place in the mountains of uh, Hubei province. <laughs> and we hit off a uh, pretty, good, pretty good friendship via some Canadian missionaries um, and just stayed in touch over the years. After that first year and a half in Hubei, I headed back to the uh, University of Pittsburgh for graduate school and got some scholarships to Taiwan. Uh, came, back to, came back to China 2008 um, in Dalian. Just caught up with mutual friends with a new ability in Mandarin. They thought they'd play a joke on Liofang. They called her, handed me the phone. She was working in mining security products. She thought <laughs> that she was annoyed that uh, one of her Taiwanese chemical vendors was calling her because I got to study Mandarin at, at Taida. And so it took a minute for me to be like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm your friend, Carl from, from Hubei. I'm not some BASF rep that is bothering you during dinner. <laughs> um, and so in 2008, Fell in love immediately. Uh, got married about six weeks later, and haven't looked back. And so the the story of our marriage kind of 
is very line step in you know in line with the growth of Greatly Brewing. You were also working though before you decided to start the brewery, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I I I am by no means a, a man of means. <laughs> okay. So I was working for uh, an international firm that did risk mitigation consulting. So I did IT security uh, and and risk management for some dot com, some FIs, and so it was kind of a you know, fly by, fly by the seat of your pants. You get a call. You got to go and pull a blade out of a colo somewhere. You got to go and talk a customer off a cliff because they just lost 15 million in customer data. Wow! And so it was, it was one of those where you know it was a, it was a mobile uh, career, but it was not the world of the positive. It was very much seeing people on the worst day of their life. Ah, right, right, right. And so, what was it? I mean, one one day you just sort of felt the calling. You decided, "Fuck, I'm, I, I I like this. This is fun. This is more than a hobby for me now. I'm going to do this as a profession." Yeah, I mean, it, it started as a hobby. Uh, you know, the, the 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 humdrum of my career pushed Leo Fang to be like, "Listen, you're a sad sack of shit. You need you need to get a hobby so you got something to look forward to." Because um, work was 17, 18 hours a day. So she kind of picked home brewing because she she and I did our honeymoon in Laos, um, had beer Laos. She loved it. Then we went on a business trip to Northern Europe, did an afternoon of binge drinking in Antwerp. She loved it. And then we came back to China with the idea of let's try to make some beer at home. And then the transition from trying to figure out how to source raw materials and find hygienic stainless steel welders and, you know, find the time, design the equipment, put it in your kitchen in a Chinese apartment, which is kind of a challenge. Uh, we kind of figured out like, hey, we're not going to the homebrew shop where we can just pull all this shit off the shelf. We're actually sourcing materials as if we were running a business. It's just supplying a hobby. Scalability of brewing from homebrew up to nano is negligible in terms of, uh, you know, uh, technical information. So, you know, the brews that we were making what, what's at home. nano? What are we talking about? Well, I mean, there's, there's different stages of brewing, right? And so the beers we're drinking right now, snow. Good S.A.B. Miller brand, uh, that's industrial beer. That's uh-huh, commercial right, beer, right? right? The beer you make at your home and, and chill in your bathtub, that's homebrew. Right. And then in between, you've got nano, micro, uh, regional, and then you know, in what would be considered now like industrial craft. So these like Lagunitas, uh, Sierra Nevada, Boston Brewing. That's industrial craft. That would be, that's what, it's like a, it's like, it's a new classification where you're producing uh, the low end of what an industrial brewery would produce mm-hmm. for a region. Mm-hmm. So you can't say that you're a craft brewery anymore. I mean, you're killing it. You're you're doing two, three million barrels a year. So it's a different it's a different style, different technique. Sure, sure, sure. And so you went from I mean to go from homebrew to nano. You said it was just scaling up was negligible. Yeah, I mean it was four X. I was doing fifty liters at home, and then the sta- the the equipment we had at number six was two hundred liters. Okay. So so I mean so you decided uh, look when you decided to do number six what was the thought process all about I mean when we say number six we're talking about uh, Doja yeah, yeah Doja Hutong, Hutong. Right, right yeah I mean the the thought process there was uh, I'm a, I wasn't of the mentality of we got to get the fuck out of these careers and start a brewery it was more you know I got customers I got colleagues coming into town all the time maybe you would take them to the old pavilion bar and Gong Tea or you know, one or two of the other like really cool beer bars, but there wasn't anything like where you could, where you knew the service was always going to be great. There was always going to be good stuff on draft. So it was kind of like a clubhouse idea. We found, we found this, uh, this courtyard in, in the Hutongs and decided, you know what, I'll, I'll give my wife's grandparents their kitchen back. We'll put equipment of a larger scale. You know, I'll be able to come down here, fuck around on the weekends 
and then when my you know customers from wherever xyz company or you know my colleagues from dallas or dc come into town we got a nice cool place to hang out listen to some tunes enjoy the yard drink some beer and so that's kind of why we rented number six um but we couldn't keep it a secret for very long um you know is is fairly obvious at this point so right 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 uh, i mean it's 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 interesting though that um you started it off just as, as sort of a kind of a supersized hobby right um so you have these you know these people coming there and and, and drinking it wasn't at this point still a business when you decided to make it a business, how aware were you of, of, of what would be actually involved in, in turning it into a, a legit biz? Well, I mean, the intention was to do something for business uh, clients, colleagues, whatever. But it, we never even got to test that out because the first batch we did, um, you know, uh, I called a buddy that was studying up at IUP at, at Tsinghua. And I was like, hey, man, you know, the, the beer that you kind of hung around and watched me brew a couple weeks ago is ready. You want to come down and try it? And so he was like, yeah, man, it's Friday night. Cool. I'll bring my roommate. So we were planning on like four or five people. And then, you know, around noon, he was like, hey, my roommate told a couple of his friends. There's 10 coming. Then he called me at three saying, hey, man, uh, there's 60 people coming. And so we knew right then, like, shit, man, I don't even have enough cups for these for that many people. Um, And so by the time we kind of like plowed through that first night, uh, Blake Stone Banks, who used to write for City Weekend, had an intern. uh, He had an intern that was just happened to be there. And she was like, listen, let me tell my, my, my boss about this. He'll love to re- write about it. At that point, we really didn't know much about the expat magazine scene. So we were just kind of like, City Weekend, I've heard of that. that that'd be pretty fun. So, that's so this is still like 2009? No, it's 2010. 2010 yeah, now. Okay. October okay. 2010. Okay, okay. Um, and were you aware of what would be required to turn it into, into an actual, uh, you know, uh, operating establishment? Did you, I mean, I've, I've, I don't even know myself if I were to say and people are always you know, raving about my Mexican food and saying, you should start a restaurant. What would be involved? Do I, would I need a Chinese partner? Can I, as a foreign national, actually start a, an F&B establishment without one? What, what's involved? Yeah, I mean, the, when, when you're starting with something that small, it's actually quite difficult for a foreigner to go in as like a wholly foreign-owned entity mm-hmm. and start something that's 100% backed by like international funding. Because you, you need to have declared capital, you need to pay your taxes, that money's got to come in through secured channels, it's got to be inspected. I mean, there's there's a lot of, you know, regulatory compliance around it. And so, you know, obviously, lovely wife, local, uh, local, Shenfenzheng, Shandong Huko, she can go and get like a guilty, which is just like an individual business for for a Chinese citizen. And so that's kind of, once we realized that, you know, Blake actually came, Blake Stone Banks came by, did the interview, and he was like, listen, you're gonna have to run this like a business. If I write about it, people are gonna come. And so that's what got us thinking like, oh shit, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're paying our taxes and we're not gonna get thumped. Um, so we just kind of called around, uh, at that level, certain agencies um, are recommended for certain levels of business licensure. So we just kind of like looked at uh, services online, found the right, District, right woman, right agent in the right district that, that was like, listen, I guarantee licensure as long as you have all the compliance lined up. What so sorts just, of compliance was necessary? I mean, Wei Sheng Zhu and all Yeah, that. I mean, back then it was, it would be like, you know, the, the Huang Bao, the Huang Jing, the um, Wei Sheng Zhu. So you're, you're, you're dealing with the EPA, you're dealing with the Environmental Protection Agency, and then you're dealing with the Environment like agency. So right. one actually deals with what you put into the ground and how you treat the trees. Mm-hmm. And one is just your neighbors. And so that's kind of like an offshoot of the Jiu Hui where you're actually 
you have to go around and ask everybody that could be affected by your business, is it okay if I open this business? Right. Um, and then you're looking at more by the letter health uh, health regulations where where are your sinks you know where's your where are your refrigerators is your is your place clean stuff like that um, if you have a bathroom how is it connected to your main water you don't you, no of <laughs> course that was that was a saving grace in the early days that we didn't actually have to worry about cleaning and managing a bathroom so but yeah I mean the when you look at you know uh, how a small business can start in China you have to kind of be along that like romantic gray area if you don't have you know if, if you're not as lucky as me to fall in love with you know a, a woman you know that's not just you know the person you trust with everything but also has a mind for business then you kind of have to really trust local chinese partners to you know go into a, a venture with you and not take advantage of the fact that you're kind of vulnerable as a foreigner right 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 We've all heard horror stories about those kinds of partnerships gone yeah. gone awry. Dime a dozen. <clears throat> um, what was the scene like? I mean, what was available on on tap around town um, in in the year two thousand ten? I mean, I remember in in the mid two thousands, in the mid aughts, people would ask me, "What do you miss about the states?" You know, by then we had you know reasonably good internet. So we had a lot, a lot, I was able to. There weren't movies or television shows that I was missing, and I of course I missed my friends. But the one thing that I would always say was. You know, I miss Anchor Steam. I miss Sierra Nevada. I miss like you know Red Tail. I, I miss all these you know Northwestern, you know Oregon and, and Washington State microbrews, and and that's about it. And then you know once in a while you you would be able to, they'd have they'd have some rogue at Jenny Lou's, or you you could find a place that that had some Brooklyn, uh, and that was about it, right? I mean, the, the, yeah. the, but IPAs were rare. You could drink that really sweet Belgian stuff, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, good really kind of hoppy American style IPAs just they they weren't to be had uh and it was kind of revolutionary for you to do this right yeah I still remember uh first couple of beers we did were not IPAs you know I I wanted to do a beer with Sichuan peppercorn I wanted to do something that was uh, a showcase for you know Qingdao flower hop which is a locally grown uh Xinjiang province uh hop and then I wanted to do a dark beer, so we did an oatmeal porter. Just, like, really, like, safe but very consumable uh-huh. products. And then everybody that was coming in was like, when are you going to do an IPA? And, like, deep down, I'm not a, I'm not a really big hophead. Uh-huh. Um, and so I wanted to do a beer that kind of represented my philosophy on that kind of a, a style. So we did the, the little general and sidebar. He, he had two nicknames. Shao Shui was one of them. It's not a, tra- it's not a translation of... Uh, you know, little general from Xiao Shui. It's just he's called little general in English and okay. Xiao Shui in Chinese. You've been pissing me off about that for like uh, two y- young marshal. It's actually yeah, the yeah, young marshal. So <laughs> <No>, really, uh, <laughs> I'll never forget. You know, we we put this beer on tap, and back in the day, we were just doing like nine twenty liter kegs worth of output. It seemed like the world, but it was nothing. And so I remember it went on tap. You know, on a, on a Thursday, we were only open Thursday, Friday, Saturday at the time. And I'm walking, kind of walking Liu Fang home because she was pregnant with our son Robbie. And uh, our good friend uh, Natalie Johnson was was tending the bar, and I'm walking kind of through the the dark alleyways of of that Hutong Hutong neighborhood, and I, we walk by two young like foreign foreign kids, and the one turned to the other and and he just said something like, "Yeah, and I hear they do an IPA. It's fucking amazing." And I was like, "Wow, you know that's that's the most enthusiastic response to a beer that we've done," and that's when I started realizing like the what what expats see when they see craft beers IPAs. 
And so you, know, you have wh- to why do is something. That? When did that start happening? I mean, because for me, it was in college. I mean, this was in the 80s already. Yeah. Sierra Nevada was already available. Anchor Steam was, it, was running. It has a lot to do with what we're trying to do by creating something that could be defined as Chinese craft beer. If you look at, uh, if you look at America, 60s, 70s, we were so self-defeatist about the beers that were in the market. Uh, you know, you asked anybody, and they were like, oh, German beer is the best beer. Right. You know, Belgian beer, Czech beer. Those were good beers. American beer is all right, but if you want great beer, you go to Europe. Yeah. And then, you know, the like local home brewers, nano breweries, craft breweries started popping up in, in regions, you know, that that had that like local agricultural and horticultural uh, access to hops. And then people started seeing, man, these domestic hops that are indigenous to America and that are being, you know, uh, that, that are either being developed new, like Citra hop is a new hop, Simcoe. These are all new trademark hops. But, but Cascade, Cascade has been around Cascade, for a while, right? Centennial, Chinook, these hops have been around for a lot longer. And so that gave Americans something to be proud of. They're like, you have to try American beer because it's got American hops in it. That's a definition of like a national identity for American craft beer. So and you so actually set out to do right. So you set out to do something using you know essentially local ingredients. And I mean, and you've done that in not just in the beer, but even in some of the food that you serve. I was commenting the other day that you know, your croutons are made of manto. Right? <laughs> right. That's awesome. And that's more of a budgetary thing than anything else. But no, but it, it ended works. Up, yeah. It ended up working. But now, whenever we look at you know what we're doing, the temptation is always there to use uh, I- imported ingredients to make copies of what exists overseas. But you know, people in America were doing that shit too. You had regional breweries that are like Leinen Kugels. That's like this is the definition of like Germanic beer in America. But when you look at where it really started to take off, it was when local people could say, "This is mine. This is mm-hmm. American." Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we look at it from perspective of Seeing our demographic switch from mainly foreigners to a majority Chinese, you know, seeing the beers that we make that are intentionally Chinese in design be the heavy, the heavy, the heavy sellers and the and the you know most sought after. Those would be Honey Ma, where you right. use you use Hua Jiao, yeah. right? you exposed some Hua Jiao. So Sichuan, the Honey Ma Gold is Sichuan peppercorn, and then a really unique date honey we get from an apiary near our other pilot brewery up at the Great Wall, and uh-huh. then we we have. A line of tea beers that have you know oolong, yeah, yeah uh, so smoky taste in the, the you get, But the the cool thing about oolong tea is it lends itself so well to craft beer that you've got like dansong oolong, and then you've got tiaguanin oolong, and you've got Taiwanese roasted tiaguanin oolong, and they they all provide these very different flavor profiles, not unlike what hops partake onto the beer or impart onto the beer. And so when you look at it from that perspective, Americans were able to really marry themselves to the ideas of hop. IPA hophead as American identity for craft beer, but now you're seeing, you know, the sky's the limit in China where you have such close access to some of the freshest and some of the best raw materials, spices, teas in the world. Awesome. So that's where I get really excited. That's where I remember why I've, you know, fucking put my wife and kid through hell for the last five <laughs> years because that's the creative bit that really gets me going. How is that? Are these all taking off? I mean, I'm feeling guilty now for always, you know, ordering. <laughs> The but I mean, when you, I mean, I like love the honey. You, should, Ma, I have you that. should not feel guilty about drinking the the little general because that's a showcase of a Chinese indigenous hop. That's right. the same vein, right? No, but, but what about what about the other? I mean, so I mean how honey, Ma, honey Ma is the best seller by a, a, a very large margin. Mm, and that's then, good to hear. And then uh, 
you know, the tea beers, it, it's harder for us to keep them on tap. They sell well, but they take a lot more of a technical application to pull off clean. And so we always, we always try to make sure that the most amount of the brewing team is around to make sure that everything is done in the best possible way. So is, is beer actually indigenous to China? I mean, did, was the, is there any evidence that, that early Chinese brewed beer? I think that, you know, it, it depends on, you know, how you define beer versus how we would define like malt liquor define like there's a lot of right, if, I mean, if you're it, looking it, at I like don't need a, that specific yeast. I, I mean, I'm talking about just a, a malt based right, fermented. No, I mean, you look at it, you look at it from the perspective of malting as a modified science or an under modified science. Yeah. China had China okay. had beer, you know, a millennia ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Egypt had beer a millennia ago. Our our More beautiful our, yeah. bu- our beautiful brethren from Central Europe stole it from them and kind of proselytized it into what it is <laughs> today. But you know, when you look at the history of brewing, it really it really came down to you know how can we how can we make water potable and drinkable and you know make sure that people don't get sick from its consumption. And so all of those cultures were really looking at all right if we boil this. And we add this bittering, you know, element that we know keeps mold and flies off of water, then that's not drinkable. That makes your face want to suck itself in. So let's add some sugar. And what's some of the most consistent sources of sugar? Grain starches. And right. so that's kind of the, the beginnings of it all. Uh, and, and what about, I mean, we're, we're probably more familiar with, um, you know, beer as reintroduced into China in uh, by the Russians and by the Germans, right? Can you talk a little bit about that, about... Uh well, I mean, the history of you know, when, when you look at the history of Harbin beer, you look at the more commonly known history of Qingdao Brewing Company. Sure. It's very much a foreign gift to China. Um, and so they battle back and forth about who's got the lowest, who's got the earliest date printed on their cans. Um, but they're almost, it was almost a simultaneous introduction by the Russians and the Germans. Um, the Germans looked at it as more of a, a mission, you know, a, a way to make you know the the their presence in Shandong more tolerable, but also to give something back to China. Um, so there's that feel good bit of the Qingdao Brewery tour, and then there's the reality of what they did appealed to that market and it appealed to the Chinese drinker as an alternative to you know some of the more traditional Chinese you know alcohols. And so that's that's the that's really the bedrock for all modern brewing in China is what the what the Germans and to a lesser extent what the Russians brought. Help me to understand the local beer market here. I mean, there's there there you know SAB Miller owns a pretty substantial piece now of Qingdao. Uh, what about Yanjing? Are they still independent? Is is there well, foreign ownership in them? Or? I mean, SAB Miller uh, has a very um, a long a long history of being rebuffed in China. Uh-huh. So they they flirted with Harbin beer for a oh, decade. Oh, that's right, Harbin beer. That, that right. It, it's it's Anheuser Busch that has ABI a piece of ended right. up beating SAB to the dance for Harbin, and then SAB retaliated by buying a lesser known brand, Snow, and then creating this m- monolithic presence of industrial beer that is on literally the largest producer of what would be considered beer in the world. Um, and so SAB is pumping billions, ABI is pumping billions, and brands like Qingdao, uh, which haven't posted profits in like years, are becoming more and more a cultural necessity. We have to keep Qingdao alive. Uh, we have to float it with loans from Hong Kong. We have to make sure that it doesn't go under, because if we lose Qingdao, if we lose brands like Yanjing, 
then it's just going to be these like massive international brewing companies mm. and China's going to lose that like heritage of even though ABI can say oh we're keep we we made Harbin relevant on the national scale internationally almost you know that's not if it's owned by a foreign entity it's not considered like a national treasure anymore so Qingdao really is that bastion of that it has to stay in business otherwise it's just going to be cons it's just going to be you know perceived as a foreign dominated market right uh, so uh, you, you um we were talking the other day we were chatting actually drinking little generals and you were uh, uh telling me that you know after you opened number six you decided you were going to scale up and do a business that was actually distributing beer to local f and b places yep. and you you opened up a um a brewery operation up near the great wall in a little village outside of Huayro, right right uh, and what happened then? I mean, that's where you ran into your first little bit of, of, of problems with the regulators. Yeah, that was, uh, at the time, I would have been horrified to even even admit that it happened. But, you know, we're older now, so it's fine. Uh, we we realized during the first spring, so we opened in, in October, and we were just shocked that people came out throughout the winter to drink the beer at number six. Um, part novelty, part interest, part support, right? Mm -hmm. And then spring rolled around, and that yard opened, and we got fucking slammed. Yeah, And so uh, at the same time, the German brewers that did Polaner and DK and some of the other brands were horrified at how I was brewing beer. Not because it was in, in any way uh, unhygienic, but because I was hurting myself. Because I'm brewing in stock pots and I'm brewing so frequently that I'm using open flames and combustible gases in a, very, in a tinderbox of a house. And I'm you know, hauling grains and taking out spent grain by hand. And they were like, listen, Carl, you're young. You've got a, you've got a wife and a kid, but you're, gonna, you're, you're not going to be able to walk in 10 years if you keep doing this to yourself. So they kind of like put us on the, on the trail of trying to get what would be considered more of a traditional style set of equipment um, instead of the fake it till you make it stuff we were using. Hmm. And so you know, then it became, all right, where do we put it? And uh, we had a friend that was trying to open uh, kind of like a boutique hostel up in, uh, up in Huayro near Mutianyu. And so we were like, hey, we want to do kind of like do a larger brewery. It might be a touristy thing. It might be a bar. It might just be a production facility. We don't know. So she kind of introduced us to some of the local local people, um, you know, up in that area. And one of them was this really young kid, you know, a 20-year-old studying at, at, a, at a uni in Beijing who was from Tianxianyu, which is like three villages away from Mu Tianyu in the yeah. valley. Um, so a lot of people know Jianko, uh, that section. Uh, Tianxianyu is the village to the south face. Okay. Um, it's beautiful. Absolutely, absolutely beautiful uh, village. So it ends up this kid's grandfather just retired as mayor. Um, he's got, you know, quote unquote, he has his own house, uh, this kid. And so he shows, his, shows it to us. It's kind of derelict, run down. Uh, and we're, at, we're talking to him. We're like, all right, well, you know, we don't have a big budget. We're just a small business. What, what can we do to rent it? And he was like, all right, it, it'll be 8000 And we were like, 8000 man, that's a, that's a lot of money. And he was like, a year. And we're like, all right, yeah, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine, man. Uh, so we signed like a 10-year lease on it. Um, they knew we were going to renovate it. Um, so we put it actually like a, a, a good bit of thought of, you know, uh, what we did wrong at number six in terms of like a beer-making space. And so we kind of renovated in terms of, you know, easy to clean, uh, separated, uh, you know, cooking area, hot block from cold block where you ferment, just making everything a little bit easier on me physically. Um, and so that took about two or three months. And then right around June uh, 2011, we installed the equipment and I was like, fuck, I don't know how to use this shit. <laughs> like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and so a Chinese brewer 
who had really taken a liking to what we were doing, uh, a guy named Chen Hong. He was the first assistant brewer at Palaner when it opened in the early 90s. Wow, I remember when Palaner opened. Yeah, yeah I mean, this guy had gotten a Ministry of Culture <coughs> um, scholarship from Germany to come to come to Munich in the late 80s and study brewing at Weinstefan. Like, this guy had done it, right? He learned Germany, went to Germany, he learned how to brew, came back to Beijing, started working at Palaner. You know, he just kind of like, he, he grew beyond being an assistant, started his own little brewery. So if, if you remember back in the day, if you were at uh, Ho Hai in like 08, 09, 2010, uh-huh. uh, there would be like Huang Pi, Hei Pi, Bai Pi, but no name, no brand. Sure, sure. No, I, I still see that sometimes yeah. in, in restaurants. So that's time. Chen Hong's beer. So yeah, that's okay. what he does, right? That's very good. Yeah. They have it at like the Jingzun restaurant right by... by exactly. Yeah, no, that's, it's, that's a, it's a solid beer and, you know, it's worth the 25, 30 quai you're paying for it. Right, right, right. He does well. You know, he does a lot of consulting. Very German style. Yeah. Well, the only, I mean, Hei Pi, Bai Pi, Huang Pi, right? right, right, that's, right. that's Germany to most Chinese uh, drinkers. So he was like, listen, you know, uh, I really like what you're doing at number six. He would service his accounts at Ho Hai and then come by number six and chat me up. And he was like, listen, I know that, I know that you're, uh, you, you just put in a brewery up at the Great Wall. Let me come up and teach you how to use it. So I actually learned how to do like proper brewery management and cleaning from a Chinese brewmaster, which I, I still feel is like pretty special for me, um, like individually. And so he kind of like taught me how to not screw it up as much. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we went out, uh, Dane Vandenberg, who uh, avid listener of Seneca, um, moved back to the States, but he's, he kind of helped us start number six after my son was born. So he knew... Uh, you know, he was one of our first like friends, family investors. We went to grad school together and I was like, dude, listen, my son was just born. It's April, 2011. I need help. And he just fucking dropped everything and moved to China. Um, and so he was kind of running number six and doing the sales part of distribution. And then I was up at the wall brewing like the larger batches. Um, so he would run around and he got, you know, patio shades and black sun and the British embassy and the U S embassy and the vineyard cafe, like Back in the day, those were all like really, those were the places to be. Sure, absolutely. Um, Still are. I mean, fucking vineyards still, they make their own beer now. Like Will's doing a great job. Um, And so, you know, he would service the accounts and I would make the beer and we'd drag it into town. And I I still remember uh, Carl Long, who used to own uh, the operating partner of uh, Patio Shea's, put his faith in us, put us on tap. Um, Irish bar serving mainly Guinness and Carlsberg, put on our IPA and our pale ale. And that uh, the second month we were on tap, which would have been September, we outsold Guinness. And he was wow. like, this is... That's got to be some kind of record in Carl doesn't blow smoke up anybody's ass. He's like, Carl, this is really special. Like, don't fuck it up. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm making really good money off of something that I can sell way faster than I can sell these, you know, uh, European imports because people know it's local. And so we were like, oh, shit, man, this is pretty cool. We're thinking about adding fermenters. We're thinking about building another little house off of the... Off of the the main uh, brewery bit at, at, up at the wall. And then uh, November 3rd, November 4th rolled around. And we, we, were, we, were, we were basically in a position where, you know, they, they cut the water off uh, November 20th. So we're just like brewing every day, trying to get stock for the winter, um, hoping that we, we could last until they turn the water back on in the village. Um, and I was halfway through brewing the second batch of Honey Mouth for the day. And uh, three... Three very uh, unpleasant-looking government officials and the mayor, the current mayor of the village, walked in and asked me, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "Well, I'm making beer." And they were like, "Can you show us your business license?" And like a little bit of backstory was, uh, we went to the 
we went to the health department in Huairo and said, listen, we're in Bohai Zhen, we're, we're in Tianxin Yuzhun, like we want to do this like little brewery. And they were like, all right, we'll fill out this paperwork and we'll send a rep, blah, blah, blah. He'll, he'll tell you what to do. Uh, it's a little bit less, uh, uh, you know, it's a little bit less crazy than trying to do something in a big city because uh-huh. it's the countryside. I mean, they all know one another. They knew my landlord was the retired mayor. Right. They, would, they would get to it eventually, right? But what they didn't tell me was they were about to lose the right to license uh, beer production facilities to the Quality and Technology Bureau, the Jurgenju. And that was the result of the melamine scandal with the tainted milk sure. and them basically just being told, listen, you're going to do restaurants and clubs and bars, and we're going to take this food production bit and give it to your big brother. Who, who the, so the Weishengju was taking away the right, and it was given to the Jurgenju because we're going to give it to your big brother that does forklifts and basketballs and mascara. Okay. And so that's who came to visit us was the Jurgenju. And they basically said, listen, we know you tried to apply for a license with the health department, but it's not theirs to license anymore. And so you need to you need to give us a justification as to what you're doing. And you need to answer the complaints from the villagers that, you know, they say that you're basically just counterfeiting, you know, imported beers. So you're the, the big one they kept saying was Jianlisha. You're, you're copying Guinness. And I was like, well, I'm not copying Guinness. There's no fucking way I'm copying Guinness. And then, you know, it, it more or less just turned into, you know, all right, well, we're going to come back tomorrow. So Liu Fang had run over. We talked to him for about 30 minutes. And they're like, we're going to come back tomorrow. You know, be ready to answer our questions. And we're like, okay, they're going to come back tomorrow. So I went back into the brew house. And I'm like, all right, I'm pr- pretty much just going to dump this batch because I'm scared out of my fucking mind about what's going to happen tomorrow. And I went to open the valve to dump the grain, and 19 guys walked in with video cameras. Wow. And it was like, they're not coming back tomorrow. <laughs> they're coming back right now. Um, and so it was the same three reps who ended up being the nicest guys, and they carried the investigation through to the conclusion. And then every intern, every guy that was probably sitting in their office when they got this phone call and decided to come up and see what this foreigner was doing. And then the mayor again, and then the party secretary for the village. Did you summon your landlord, the ex-mayor? I, I did not. We were too afraid because we didn't. I mean, basically, when they came back, they were like, they pointed at my wife and said, you're going to jail. There's a truck at the bottom of the hill. We're ripping all the equipment out, and he's getting deported. And so I'm standing there going, this can't possibly be happening. You know, uh, what are we going to do? Did you um, think they were looking for a shakedown? Do they? I mean, was you it, don't come with 19 people for a shakedown. You come right, with two. Right. So right, if they right. were, maybe they were coming for a shakedown at the beginning. I don't think they were. I mean, we got to know these guys pretty well, and you know, you kind of you get to know the difference between kind of like a, a, a dodgy lower level district guy that's trying to like you know get some money on the side. And then the people that are actually responsible for the health and well-being of Chinese citizens. And you think this was the latter, that they were actually... I, I know that for a fact. Oh, that's very... I mean, this is kind of a cheering story, then. <laughs> well, not yet, but yeah, it, it gets there. And so... Well, you're you know, still in business, obviously. You didn't get deported. <laughs> right, it, Liu it, Fang it, did not do a day in jail. It, right. right. Well, yeah. Uh, unless, you, unless you account, you know, being married to me as prison. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> so basically, they were just like... They were trying to scare us to see what we would do. And we did what they wanted us to do, which was be scared out of our fucking mind and, you know, look worried. And so we had not called our landlord. We had not called the young... His grandson that kind of rented us the house. Um, but he came anyway. Because um, he, was, he was irate. Like, he's... You right. know, I've, I was the mayor here for 20 years. How dare... This is my house, my property... He walked in and he knew by the amount of people that were there 
that this was not going to be something that he could solve. So he didn't did that. He did the next best thing. And he said, listen, this is my equipment. It's my house, my equipment. I pay that foreigner to brew on it. You can't take it. I've done nothing wrong. And so they kind of looked at him and they were like, well, we don't really want to take it because we wouldn't know what to do with it. And then they looked at me and they could, they would be like, well, this guy's definitely dumb because <laughs> look at what <laughs> he's doing. Um, and so they, you know, it didn't end there. Uh, you know, we were there for another four or five hours you know, they very bright lights, very, very, uh, you know, obvious video footage, them trying to get me to explain what I, you know, the brewing process and what was actually happening. Why, why are these tanks kind of bubbling, you know, you know, what's going on in here. Um, and then the, the result was they realized, okay, we've got a 76 and a 75 year old Shandong, uh, couple living with us. That's obviously her grand, my wife's grandparents. Uh-huh. We've got a four month old kid who's being breastfed they can't arrest her like it's chinese law you can't arrest a mother that's breastfeeding and so they came they came to leo fang and they said listen you know you're in trouble like this is bad you know you're 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 doing you're creating food and bev without a license to do it at this location um so you know the the result's going to be you have we can't arrest you because you're you're a young mother and you're breastfeeding your kid but you're going to come tomorrow at 8 30 and we're going to start an investigation at our office and so they kind of packed up the, the circus, um, you know, the flatbed truck pulled away. They obviously weren't going to take the equipment anymore. And, you know, Leo Fang and I are there in silence after a day of some of the most traumatic questioning and emotions. I mean, I'm on the phone with Dane Vandenberg going, dude, like they're, they're here. It's over. And he's like, well, you want me to like pack your shit at your apartment and get you plane tickets? Like, what do you want me to do? Um, and we were like, well, you know, they want us to do an investigation. So let's at least see what they want to say tomorrow. They didn't arrest us. So we're not dead. So let's see what they're going to say. Um, and, but it was it was when that last Audi pulled away and Leo Fang and I are standing in the countryside of, you know, Huayro looking up at the stars, you know, after a day of this shit, we're looking at each other going, what the fuck did we get ourselves into? We just wanted to make beer. Like, what what is this? What's going to happen? Um, so the old man, the, the landlord kind of came up to us and said, listen, you know, that's the best I can do. I'm sorry I'm old. And you could tell that he was fucking heartbroken. Right. Because 10 years ago, he would have run that situation, and it would have never happened like that. But, you know, they put him out to pasture, and this is the best he could do to help. So, so know, the, how did the, the next day was when it really started to become a reality. And the investigation, how did that unfold? Um, well, we, we showed up at the at their office in, in Huayro City, so Huayro proper. Um, and, you know, they, Liu Fang and I kind of walked in up to the building and the guy that, uh, led the, led the interrogation the day before came out and said, we don't want him, <laughs> like put him back in the car. <laughs> like they didn't want anything to do with like a, f- a foreign passport holder. So right. I went back and sat in the car with uh, my wife's grandfather and, and our four month old son and hoped to God that, you know, nothing happened. Um, and so basically <laughs> how long was she in there for? Uh, first day was about full full office day. So oh, wow. when they when they went to dinner, she went home. Um, they let her they let her come out every two and a half three hours to breastfeed Robbie, and then she kind of like looked at me like she was going back to Shawshank, <laughs> and she went back. You know, during those little little hiatuses, she was like, "Listen, they're just asking me the same four questions over and over again." You know, like you do, are we copying Guinness? You know, are we, is is it safe to is it safe to consume? What are your intentions? What are you, what's your investment? Who gave you the money? Blah blah blah. Um, so their their main drive was all right. If this if if these people are are really counterfeiting alcohol, we need to know who put them up to it because they ca- they couldn't possibly have come up with it on their own. Look at them, and then if they're not counterfeiting alcohol, then what's their what's their plan? 
And so she went through that for the first day. And then the second day we went up and she was like, listen, the whole first day, she's like, listen, we have a tap room in the city. You can come see it. Like you can, you can come by and you can look at what we're actually doing and you'll know that we're not doing anything counterfeit. We're just trying to create our own stuff. And so at the end of the second day, you know, there was this very ominous cavalcade from Huayro back into the city. And Dane spent the entire day, you know, cleaning and making sure the, the original location was ready because um, he had shut down for a day um, when, when the brewery got raided because he didn't know what to do. Sure. Yeah. And so he kind of like went back, you know, opened up, dusted everything off, got ready for these guys to walk in. And I'll never forget, you know, it was the three guys that walked into the brewery while I was brewing. Um, and they, we all went into town. We kind of meander down to the hutongs and they're kind of looking at us like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and so we get out of the car and we kind of, there's a bit at Dojiao Hutong where you can't really drive through it unless you're an old, like a Lao Beijing guy that's done it his entire life. So we kind of park and then walk in and we walk into the yard and we, then they walk into the door. They walk through the door and see the blackboard and they look at us like, what the, f like, what the hell? Are you, like, needs like I'm on it. Like, this is not any, this is a waste of my fucking time uh -huh. to drive all the way into the city to see some dump. Like, who the hell would ever come here? That was the response. <laughs> and so we were like, well, you know, we actually, you know, we, we, we do well enough that, you know, we, we were thinking of expanding up, uh, you know, using the facility that you kind of, you, uh, you're investigating right now. And they were like, listen, come back tomorrow morning. Uh, we'll, we'll go up to the brewery uh, in the village. We're going to take three kegs of your beer at random out of the keg closet. Um, you can even select which, which ones you want us to take. But we're going to take it. It's going to go to the, the Jurgenju's National Lab. Um, and we're going to test it. And if it comes back contaminated, if it comes back with mercury, you know, uh, what still blows my mind, uh, above the accepted level of formaldehyde, then, you're, in tr <laughs> then you're, you're fucked. You know, he's getting deported for sure. And you're going to get a fine. And we were like, well, you know, is there an alternative? And it wasn't like a bribery thing. It sure, was like, sure. is there an alternative? Like, can we do it? Can we just shut it down? Like, is there, is it you test it and, and he might go to, he might get deported or can we just stop? And they were like, listen, you can stop. But, you know, based on what you just spent the last two days telling us, you don't have anything to worry about. So let us test it. And so Chen Hong, going back to the Chinese brewer that taught me how to brew at that scale, is a brilliant sanitary brewer and he taught me how to do things clean and that's been the success of great leap for the last four years is that knowledge so i kind of leo fang and i talked about it and i was like listen we don't have anything to be ashamed of i know that beer's clean we how long was it before it came back from the lab um so they took it uh we went up there they made me carry the kegs into the trunk of their audi uh and then i had to give them a hand pump so they could serve it or so they could get samples um they drove off uh, before they left they just said listen you know, the investigation is suspended until the results of the of 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 the uh, lab come back. You're not gonna go anywhere. Like even if you left Beijing, you have to come back. Your grandparents are here. We know where you live. We've got all your information. You can't run. And so it was creeping up on Thanksgiving, and I'm like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. So I was like, Listen, man, is there any way that I can take my wife and kid to America? And he said to me, If you go, don't come back. If, if your intention is to run, don't ever come back. Don't right. think you can go for a year and come back. But if you're going to come back, you tell me when. And so we booked the tickets and we gave them our return flight information. And I'll never forget, we went to the States, blah, blah, blah. We come back to, we fly back into Pudong um, and we land at, at T2 or whatever. And we get out and we're trying, supposed to get a domestic connection to, to Beijing and Liu Fang's phone rings. 
and it was the dude and he was like did you enjoy your flight <laughs> she was like holy wow. shit You're she was like wall. well yeah uh, and he was like well we'd like to have dinner with you sometime this week if possible and so we went we went up to Huayro. When we got back to, into Beijing, we kind of asked the the uh, landlord in the city in the in the village, like, "Hey, man, this guy called. Do you know anybody that can see if we're like walking into real trouble?" And this old dude's been a member of the party since Mao, and he was just like, "If he's asking you to dinner, just fucking go. Like, they, he's not going to ask you to dinner and arrest you. He's just going to arrest you. Like, he's not going to waste his time." Right. So we go to we go we ended up going to this dinner in Huayro City. And as we're on the way, they call Liu Fang, and they were like, "Hey, if you would be so inclined, maybe bring a bottle of Guojiao, because we don't we don't drink Mao Tai." <laughs> we're like, okay. <laughs> so we stop and we get a bottle of, of Baijiu, and we walk in, and it was it was the three guys that led the investigation, and then their leader, um, and then a couple of the people we recognized from the the, the 19, initial uh, yeah. Uh, and we sit down, and the first thing out of one of the one of the lead investigators' mouths is, "Man, you make some good beer. We really enjoyed it." <laughs> <laughs> So I was like, wait a minute, you, you drank it? And he was like, yeah, we only needed 500 milliliters of each. Of course we drank it. Like once it came back from the national lab that it was safe, then we drank it. And I was like, well, what, what do we do now? And uh, their advice is something that I think, you know, uh, people that know our brand will realize we listen to. They said, do a Palaner. Stop fucking around with trying to do distribution. You don't, there's nev- never going to be a license for that. There's never going to be a license for a tiny little place to that produces minuscule amounts of beer and we're going to allow it to go into the wild and be consumed at random by people without any controls. Right. And I was like, well, what, what do you mean do a planner? He's like, do a restaurant that has a brewery in it that I can take my leader to and show him what you're doing. Cause I can't show him an illegal farmhouse and then flip that into, you know, regulatory compliance. You have to do it and prove the market. So this was the genesis of number 12. It was. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what a story. My God. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> and so how's number 12 doing now? And then you have uh, yet another. So just catch us up. I mean, since we're, we're, we're sort of out of time now. But, oh, um, yeah. No, I mean, number 12 opened uh, 2013. And I think, you know, people that have been there kind of know. Like, I, I feel like I can't brag on it because <laughs> that makes me sound like an arrogant dick. But it, it's doing very well. It's it's exceeded expectations. Well, I can so. attest to that. It's doing extremely well. I mean, Jeremy, uh, I used to you know drag him there all the time. And he started to say, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. That's, that's his, his issue with it. Classic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it did well enough that when we found, when we found that you know, we were basically turning away between 75 and 150 people on a Friday night, that it was time to open another one. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we found a location uh, in Xinyuanli that... Different clientele there. Very different clientele, right? Yeah. I mean, when we, when we walked into that property at number 12, it was right in the middle of a lot of stuff, right? You're right, right at, you're north of Gongti. You're walking distance from San Lituan. You know, Xin uh, Fu already had kind of a culture of F&B consumption. Sure. sure. Uh, but when we, t- um, we knew, like, man, this is, again, this is a beachhead thing. There's Japanese sake bars. Japanese. Well, you know, I'm working up a powerful thirst. And <laughs> I, I, they're on me. Beers are on me tonight. Uh, but... <laughs> I mean, you, you didn't ask for permission. You kind of asked for forgiveness afterward, and, and, and that's often sort of the way to do things. And anyway, once again, thanks a lot, Carl. And folks, we'll see you next week on Simica Podcast. Take care.